The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, I got a new Red Sox hat. <laughs> it's my new Red Sox hat. Uh, I'm not sure why I'm buying Red Sox merch right now instead of uh, Yes We Cam Patriots gear. But, yes. you know, let's talk a little sports. We don't always have to be foreign policy nerds. I just want to update people real quick. <laughs> the Mets still suck. The Jets are still even worse. And the Knicks are still owned by James Dolan. So my... My life of sports fandom has prepared me for 2020, I have to say. <laughs> I was watching the Patriots-Seattle uh, game the other day, and for some reason, the announcers just went on a tirade, kicking the shit out of the Jets for like a minute and a half, and it was yeah, so yeah, funny yeah, yeah. that somehow the Jets were also losing the Patriots-Seahawks yes. game. We will not talk about the ending of that, although uh, Russell Wilson is incredible. So today, we got a lot of good stuff. There's the latest and greatest information about Russia's election interference efforts. There are some disturbing reports about the U.S. government collecting intelligence on protesters. Uh, There's a story about a Marine and a murder in the Philippines, a survey about what Americans know about the Holocaust, why Africa has fared so much better with the coronavirus. Uh, Ben, the U.N. General Assembly is this week. Isn't that weird? It's so odd. It's like this big part of our lives, this big gathering, and now it's just, I don't know, like empty speeches to an empty room. What, what, What is it? It's usually like the 12 days of Christmas for foreign policy nerds, you know, uh, <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> not to mention the worst traffic week uh, of the year in New York, but uh, oh it's very, God, yeah. very odd to see it kind of disembodied virtually like this. Yeah, we'll, we'll duck into that for a bit. Uh, there are reports that Trump considered assassinating the president of Syria, some Iran news, updates from Mali, Saudi Arabia, the Pentagon's dumb spending, uh, and details about domestic terrorist threats in Australia. So a packed show. And then I talk with uh, Susanna George, the Afghanistan and Pakistan bureau chief for The Washington Post, about covering the Taliban-Afghan peace talks and the latest on the drawdown of U.S. troops. Also, As you may have heard, Tuesday was National Voter Registration Day, but it is never too late to double check to make sure you're registered. Go to votesaveamerica.com slash verify. Check it out. This is really, really important if you've moved since the last election, if you changed your name, if you haven't voted in a while. So just give it a check. Republicans love to take people off the voting rolls when they don't want. Uh, And then go to votesaveamerica.com slash vote to see if you want to volunteer or or get involved in the election. Also, Ben, great new episode of Missing America out today on xenophobia. Yeah, we we really look at xenophobia from the perspective of the refugee crisis. Um, And and I really encourage people to check this out because you will hear the the actual story of what happened in 2015. You'll hear from some amazing voices internationally who are supporting refugees, but also finding new and creative ways to to better integrate refugees into host uh, communities. And here's some really good ideas uh, from leading thinkers about how to fix a system in which there are 80 million people currently displaced. So this is a problem that you know isn't in the headlines right now. But I think if you listen to this, you'll see how we deal with refugees ultimately says a lot about what kind of country we are and what kind of world we're going to live in. Um, and uh, I'm really excited about the voices we bring you in this episode. 
Yeah, it's a great episode. Um, really amazing people you talk to. And frankly, the refugee crisis ties in with so many yeah. other things we talk about from Afghanistan to Syria. Climate. Uh, to the EU, the climate. Yeah, everything in between. Um, all right. I think we should start with the Russian interference beat because there's a lot of news there. So a, a couple different pieces of this. Vox had a good article about how Russia's efforts to influence the 2020 election with propaganda have evolved. The short version is that these like Russian bot farms from 2016 have been replaced with this more sophisticated effort to essentially identify and promote like, I don't know, freelance, I guess is what you'd call them, American writers to write up and push the Russian narrative. So you're seeing like actual American writers promoted on Russian propaganda sites. They're getting boosted on social media um, and it's, you know, pretty effective. In testimony before Congress, the FBI director Christopher Wray said, quote, we have seen very active, very active efforts by the Russians to influence our election in 2020, which of course led Trump to quote tweet him and attack him <laughs> on Twitter for not mentioning China. Um, Microsoft says Russian hackers have targeted 200 groups tied to the U.S. election. The Washington Post today reported that the CIA believes that Putin and his top aides are probably directing, those are the words they use, the Russian influence operation to denigrate Joe Biden, uh, including by feeding information to useful idiots like Rudy Giuliani, often through officials in Ukraine. So that's the stuff we know about. God knows what's not public yet. But, you know, the point is, like, Russia's job in some ways is easier this year because we are so polarized, because Trump has undercut the media. He has introduced the concept uh, of alternative facts to our lexicon. Thank you, Kellyanne Conway. It just makes it easier for the Russians to amplify lies uh, pushed by, you know, right-wing groups like TPUSA. Uh, and that strategy is more effective than, like, paying some Romanian teen to just like make up stuff. So, you know, Ben, like the sad and weird reality is we're in a place where the president of the United States and Russian propaganda outlets are are, are singing from the same hymn book. And it's just kind of like the way it is. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think there's a sense that there's not much that can be done before election day, but that's not entirely true because even if the federal government under Trump won't do anything to protect us, Officials in that government can raise the alarm, as Christopher Wray did. Companies like Microsoft uh, and other tech companies can try to pull content off their platforms or try to call out hacking efforts when they see it. Citizens, all of us, can be more aware of the deliberate nature of these disinformation campaigns. So we ultimately are going to need to develop some antibodies as a society to deal with this in any event, but particularly in the event where the President of the United States is essentially uh, you know, acting as, as a, a not just complicit, but a tool of Russian disinformation. And not just Rudy Giuliani, you've got Ron Johnson, the senator, literally building an investigation uh, of the Bidens in the United States Senate based on information fed to him by, by Russian agents, you know, just Russian disinformation in the United States Senate here. Uh, and I think what it, the, the two things it points out, and you alluded to this, Tommy, is like, first, the problem is us. I mean, the problem is is our country and our discourse is so broken that it's very easy for the Russians to come in and just stir that pot and amplify stuff and turn people even more against each other. Um, and, and, you know, essentially, there's a symbiotic relationship between the American right wing and the Russians uh, to, to fuel the kind of division and conspiracy theory that helps Donald Trump. But I think more generally, you know, whether it's the Russians or anybody else, and we focus so much on the Russians, you know, polarization is not a given. Like there are people who choose to polarize, people who choose to divide, people who choose to spread conspiracy theories. And, you know, we're in this kind of, I mean, Tommy, if you watch some of these, these you know, events in the background and you see these QAnon people and these 
pedophile charges. Like it is the rod is deep and don't think the Russians aren't stirring that pot either. So the other thing I just think people need to recognize is even if Joe Biden knock on wood wins, like none of this is going away. And it's not just about elections. It's about, oh, wow, we can so easily kind of just implode American society. And, 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 and the Russians, you know, are doing that uh, because because it's not hard for them to do. They're also trolling us. I mean, you you sent this around to our our like Worldos group chat. RT put out a video where they have like a Donald Trump impersonator flying to Moscow to get offered a job if he loses the election. And they're like, not fake news, but deep fakes. They're like dangling the idea that they might wink, create wink. deep yeah. fakes. Yeah, it's just like, fuck yeah. you. <laughs> well, Girl. also, but like, uh, congratulations, Republicans. You know, you went from being the party of Ronald Reagan, the evil empire, right. to a party led by someone who's such a joke that he's being trolled by the very Russian government that helped get him elected <laughs> because they have no respect for him or for us, right? And that's that's the, the Republican Party's evolution from the 80s to today. Never, ever, ever, just like you don't listen to them on Supreme Court matters, listen to these guys like you know Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham who put themselves up as these like Russian hawks defending democracy. Give me a break. Look what you've done to us. You yeah. made us this, like, this laughingstock that is trolled by RT. Yeah, thanks again, hardliners. Uh, let's turn to these these Portland protest stories for a minute because this is pretty disturbing. So Ken Klippenstein at The Nation reported that during the height of the Portland protests, the U.S. was conducting a bunch of intelligence collection on protesters, including intercepting protesters' phone calls. So this comes on top of what we already knew, the videos we all saw of like DHS goons throwing protesters into unmarked vans. There were reports about DHS's uh, intelligence division generating intelligence reports on journalists. Brian Murphy the former DHS undersecretary of intelligence turned whistleblower. He got demoted after reports uh, about collecting intel on journalists broke. But this piece suggests that the public narrative around his demotion was not true and that actually Murphy was removed for something maybe more nefarious. So, Ben, you know, this is serious stuff. The allegations include intercepting calls, using the FBI to potentially break into protesters' phones, uh, and other outlets have confirmed that the DEA and the U.S. Marshals were conducting aerial surveillance flights over these protests. So, you know, we've talked before about, you know, the administration seemingly trying to lay the groundwork for this kind of stuff, like trying to paint Antifa as a terrorist group or, or tie them to some foreign terrorist organization. I'm trying to understand what possible legal authority you might be able to have to do any of this stuff. Like, I guess you can get a warrant, if you have evidence of criminal conduct and then do lawful surveillance on someone. But this seems like it was a broad effort to surveil uh, peaceful protesters. And I saw that Ron Wyden uh, tweeted out the story and said he's trying to get to the bottom of this by basically getting stonewalled. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this feels totally extrajudicial. This feels like what you would totally see in an authoritarian system, right? Using federal militia and federal resources to spy on, intimidate, and gather information on political opponents. And what we found, right, is that when you don't have a justice department that is going to enforce the rule of law against the executive branch, when you have a Congress that refuses to conduct any oversight, um, and even if the Democrats tried Trump doesn't go along with it. And then the courts, you know, ultimately may side with Trump if it goes to the Supreme Court, given the direction of things like we found a huge blind spot in our system where, you know, essentially, if people are willing to just disregard not only norms, but laws and then get away with it, um, they can do that. And to me, that suggests that 
if and when Democrats, you know, have p- power in their hands again, they need to make some th- some fundamental reforms here. Um, they need to take apart the Department of Homeland Security. This should not exist. I, and I, I've had friends who who worked at DHS who say, "Well, you you can't hold it against the the department that that there were some bad apples that did this." But the, if the bad apples could do this, it's not set up right. There's too much. I mean, to have an intelligence function and a law enforcement function and immigration enforcement function and a counterterrorism function and all these things under one umbrella that you could put, you know, Chad Fratpaddle, the acting secretary on top of it and just turn it into some SA style militia that terrorizes Americans. That's a problem. And there needs to be more checks and balances built into it. And they need to to separate out these different functions. So there's not just this kind of hyper securitized agency that can be turned into like the personal, you know, arm of force of the president of the United States. And by the way, if there's four more years, I mean, God only knows what the DHS will be doing in, in, in Democratic majority cities in, in a second Trump administration. Yeah. And just for what it's worth, I mean, so listeners know, I, you know I'm talking to journalists who work this beat. They will often hear from employees at DHS who are not liberals, who might be right wingers themselves, who hate the setup of DHS. <laughs> you know, what I mean, like if you're a Secret Service, why are you lumped in with ICE and not under Treasury? But now you're like, it, it, none of it makes any sense. It's a post 9/11 hodgepodge of idiocy. It, it's a a total. It, like, there's no transparency. It doesn't make any sense. Like it's not it's not radical to suggest that you know we could sort of take some of these uh, components of DHS and just put them in different places uh, in the government where they might have more oversight and accountability. It just worked better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's important to stress. I'm glad you did that. Like, we're not talking about eliminating all these functions. It's just saying, like, why isn't immigration enforcement in the Department of Justice? You know, why is FEMA in the same agency as TSA? You know, like it doesn't the the, 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 you've lumping together all of these functions uh, is, is I think, what kind of creates this, again, securitized approach to everything, right? Because it's yeah. homeland security. Everything is about this kind of post denial of mindset. It's a threat. The immigrants are a threat. Your, your grandmother getting on the airplane with like a, a bottle of water is a threat. Like, like this has done uh, damage to our national psyche, This the, the, the fact of this post 9-11 securitized mindset and this department that stands for it. And, and there's got to be better ways uh, to organize government to to guard against these abuses and to kind of desecuritize some of these functions and immigration enforcement certainly comes to mind as well for that. Yeah, um, and this is distinct from the broader discussion about abolishing ICE, which is an important yeah. one in its own right. Uh, let's turn to the Philippines for a minute. Um, so this is a story that's gotten some more attention recently, but it starts in 2014. So uh, a 19-year-old Marine named Lance Corporal Joseph Scott Pemberton murdered a woman named Jennifer Laud that he met at a club in the Philippines after discovering she was transgender. He was found guilty of homicide and sentenced to a reduced sentence of 10 years in a Philippine prison. Um, according to a comprehensive report on this this incident, this story in the New York Times Magazine, Pemberton was only the second U.S. service member to be convicted of a felony, and it's the first time that a conviction wasn't overturned like this in the Philippines. But earlier this month, Pemberton was allowed to fly home to the United States and was granted a full pardon by Rodrigo Duterte, the president of the Philippines. And Duterte's you know, intervention here was, was confusing to me, Ben, because he had previously threatened to terminate the Visiting Forces Agreement with the U.S., which is the set of rules that outlines how cases like this are even handled. So it didn't seem like he would be a big fan of uh, letting someone off who had actually committed a crime. But, you know, the, the clear message, I think, that the LGBT community 
took away from Duterte's decision was that their lives don't matter to him. You know, if, if you're gay or lesbian or transgender in the Philippines, your life just does not matter as much as his relationship with the U.S. So just a few thoughts here, Ben. So when Trump announced his cruel, ridiculous ban on transgender people serving in the U.S. military, he cited cost as a reason. The estimated cost for transition-related medical procedures was like 2.4 to 8.4 million per year, which is like <laughs> the smallest drop in the bucket yeah. at DOD. The Marine Corps paid $550,000 in legal fees to defend this case. And Pemberton has received 160 grand in salary since the killing. So I think it gives you a sense of, you know, DOD is happy to spend half a million defending someone who murders transgender people, but not healthcare for them. That says a lot about their values. Second, these visiting forces agreements or status of forces agreements are, are standard in countries where the U.S. military has a presence. But this is a good example about how they can cause just enormous damage to America's reputation in that host country when the citizens feel like U.S. service members are above the law. So just a, a tragic story all around uh, and a horrible policy decision to ban transgender service in the U.S. military. Yeah. And I, I think if you if you go down the rabbit hole of this case as I, I did. I mean, it's it's just horrific and couldn't be more open and shut and, and couldn't be more clear that this guy, uh, Pemberton, basically, you know, didn't care about the, the human life of the person he killed. And, you know, to me, a, a few things jump out. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned the, the transgender ban because, I mean, what message does it send to our other troops to suggest that someone can't you know, it, it suggests that they're somehow less than human, you know, that they, they can't yeah. serve in the same way that you can. It, it reinforces this obviously happened before that. But I mean, it, it, we should think constantly about the message that we're sending um, and how we approach state institutions like the military. I think the, the other thing with Duterte is like, I don't when I saw this, I didn't think he was necessarily trying to curry favor with the U.S., I mean, I think that, you know, he it plays to his base and his kind of macho. You know, we've seen this with Trump and Bolsonaro and Duterte. There's this particularly kind of machismo, you know, approach yep. to being a strong man where you're constantly showing and Putin started this where you're constantly showing how tough you are by, you know, beating up on LGBT people. Right. I mean, so that that's how I read what he's doing. But what what a, what a guy in terms of, you know, he puts himself forward as standing up for national sovereignty of the Philippines. And, and meanwhile, he's pardoning this guy, a foreigner who killed a Filipino. And he is throwing Maria Reza, like one of the leading Filipino journalists in prison. This is not a guy, you know, who's really at the end of the day about the Philippines. He's about himself and about his yeah. kind of backward looking, you know, toxic masculinity worldview. And, and you know, I, I think it, it shows why should we care about trans rights? You know, let's say you don't even know any trans people. It's because how societies treat the most vulnerable is ultimately going to shape what kind of societies we are. And if we elect leaders like this who demonstrate how tough they are by going after uh, LGBT people or, or giving impunity to those who harm them, that's going to end up, you know, coming for the rest of us uh, ultimately, and 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 that's unfortunately what we're seeing in the in, in the Philippines and and Russia and and here in the U.S. Yeah, th that this discussion of like how we treat the vulnerable, how we treat you know outgroups in countries, I think actually uh, unfortunately dovetails with our second topic, which is the Holocaust. Um, this story really disturbed me. There, there was a survey of eighteen to thirty nine year olds in the U.S. And it found that almost two thirds of respondents didn't know that six million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust. One in 10 believe that Jews caused the Holocaust. 
23% said they believe that the Holocaust was a myth or was exaggerated or they just didn't really know. Um, more than half of respondents had seen Nazi symbols on social media or in like their communities. Uh, half had seen Holocaust denial online. The survey was commissioned by an organization called the Conference on Jewish Claims Against Germany. So let's just count the ways this is disturbing. First of all, it seems like just a, a total failure of basic education uh, about one of the most important and horrific events in, in modern history. One. Second, I, you know, I think this is connected with the rise of conspiracy theories like QAnon or the demagoguing of uh, George Soros. I mean, a, a lot of these conspiracy theories that we're now talking about are really just versions of old ones. Like there are a lot of anti-Semitic tropes about a cabal of global elites like the Rothschilds controlling the world or an updated version of blood libel, which is this, you know, when anti-Semites claim that Jews kill Christian kids in religious ceremonies. But the difference now, in my mind, is how easy it is to find volumes and volumes of this shit online. And when you see something enough online or someplace, you start to believe, well, parts of it must be true. And social media platforms claim they're trying to rein it in, but I just, I don't think we've really scratched the surface. And this kind of survey data is, is, is really concerning to me. Yeah, it should be. And, you know, a couple of things popped in my head when, when I saw this topic come up on your list and, and looked into it. I mean, the first is, you know, somebody who I was meeting with in, in of all places, Singapore, uh, said something to me a year ago that's just kind of stuck in my head, which is that the period after World War II, the 75 years after World War II, may have been this kind of artificial cycle where World War II was such a catastrophe and the Holocaust was such a catastrophe that kind of unusually the nations of the world were like, well, we really can't do that again. You know, and, and they set up all these rules and institutions to kind of prevent another world war from happening. There was a lot of awareness brought around the Holocaust. And, and, and now that we've moved two or three generations away from that, the memory is fading and all these forces are coming back. You know, nationalism, kind of blood and soil, ethnic nationalism, conspiracy theory. You know, it can be about Jews. It can be about other groups. And there is this kind of feeling that like, the world you and I, Tommy, grew up in was still shaped, I think, by that post-World War II idea that, like, we can't do that again. And we don't want to fight World War III with the Soviets because everybody would die. And we have to have some, you know, guardrails on uber-nationalism. We all learn about the Holocaust. At some point, you know, I don't know if it's time passing or what, that seems to have frayed. Then I also thought, like, the education point you made, like, because, I mean, it's hard to, there's some uncomfortable realities that we as Americans have to face, which is that, like, Look at our response to COVID. Look at how fast these conspiracy theories spread. Look at the basic knowledge of the Holocaust you mentioned. Like something has happened in the public education of this country in the last 40 years, ever since efforts started to be made to kind of gut funding for public education that is you know, going to seriously impair this nation's capacity to hold together as a democracy and to deal with challenges. And so I think I'm not an education expert, but I think we need more focus from a public policy perspective, of like how the hell are we going to educate our kids better? And then the last thing that jumped out to me is, I, I, I know I followed in your footsteps too on this, Tommy, like I've, I've been digging more and more into this QAnon stuff because I've heard from people I know who are journalists who are like, they get heckled as child molesters because they're just in the media, you know? And I'm like, what is going on? Yeah. And, and this is not a small problem. <laughs> it's not a small problem no, it's huge. If, if millions, if not tens of millions of Americans believe that somehow the country is being run by a cabal of... Of, of, of child molesters and there, there's whether it's the media or the Jews or whomever um, this is and, and the Holocaust shows you like conspiracy theories can lead all the way to that you know um, and I'm not 
saying no, no. that that's where yeah. QAnon is. Yeah, I'm, I'm just saying that like th- th- this is something is broken, <laughs> and 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 we need to be aware of that and and mindful of it as we vote and then as our leaders make policy decisions. Look, I, I mean, I, I am comfortable saying that I think the end state of QAnon is violence because if you really yeah. believe that there's an elite cabal of people like killing children pedophile rings, et cetera, what wouldn't you do to stop that? You know, And um, if people want to sort of dig into the origins of QAnon, Reply All is an amazing podcast. Their latest episode interviews one of the founders of like 4chan and 8chan about the genesis of, of these Q drops that started on those message boards. And they actually think they figured out exactly who did it. And it's just this grifter guy and his son who actually live in the Philippines who run 8chan, which was shut down, is now this other gross site called like 8coon or something like that. So it's worth listening to because it's very interesting. But yeah, Ben, I mean, to your point about public education, Trump's response is to assail the 1619 project and like demand more patriotic education, which is about as nationalist as you can possibly get. Yeah. And, and, you know, look, we've seen rising instances of anti-Semitism. We saw a shooting at the Tree of Life synagogue um, that killed American Jews by a white nationalist. Right. And so Jews are always particularly vulnerable to these this conspiracy theorizing. They, they always end up being the villains. And, and, and I think we should see. And I mean, unfortunately, everything is seen as a partisan comment. But like these George Soros memes. Right. George Soros is pretty fundamental to some of this QAnon stuff. Like that, that, that's barely veiled anti-Semitism, right? The idea oh, totally, that yeah, the, there's a Jewish financier trying to control the world. I mean, that's ripped out of the pages of the protocols of the elders of Zion and the kind of yeah. garbage that led to the Holocaust in the first place. So it, it, it's the old conspiracy theories, right? And you, the Rothschilds and, and the, the German Jews stabbed the Germany in the back. And it, it's all being repurposed for you know new targets. And Jews are always part of those targets, but they're not the only one. It's, it's a lot of groups. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. There was a report uh, in The Guardian, which is that far-right violent extremism constitutes 30 to 40% of Australia's domestic counterterrorism cases. That increased from 10 to 15% before 2016. This information became public when the deputy director of the Australian Security Intelligence Organization, or ASIO, I guess, uh, testified for parliament. So look, this is a scary trend that we're seeing that you just mentioned, Ben, because we're seeing far-right extremists in the US, in Germany, in other parts of Europe. So they believe, ASIO, this intelligence agency, believes that COVID has led to more people being isolated and just radicalized online. And it's just, it's another reminder of like, I don't know, the unforeseen 
uh, consequences of the coronavirus, but also that we have spent trillions of dollars fighting Islamist extremism or freaking out about Iran. And there's this domestic terror threat in our countries growing before our eyes at home. And we're really not doing anything about it. Yeah. I mean, I guess today's the day. I'm glad that we're doing this actually, just kind of being alarmist about this because we should be. I mean, first of all, this has been around, right? The KKK was a domestic terrorist threat. Timothy McVeigh killed a lot of people in Oklahoma City. So the idea that the kind of white supremacist terrorists or a problem is not new, but it's clearly getting worse. And we've seen in those same reports about DHS, this idea that that they're suppressing that information. Yes. The people in DHS are like, hey, the biggest threat. And Christopher Ray, the FBI director, said the biggest threat is from white supremacist terrorists. And, and we're not we're we're standing down, right? Like to take the what the Republicans used to say about Islamists like there there's clearly like a, a directive to not make a deal out of this. And I worry like the warning signs are there. We we saw the mass shooting in New Zealand. We've seen shootings here in El Paso, Tree Life Synagogue yeah. I mentioned, in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Like this stuff is there. The online footprint is there. And do we have to wake up one day in this country and see like a, a building exploded to take this seriously? Because like that's what's going to happen. And, and I think we also have to you know recognize that it's gotten worse under Trump in some ways because these people feel emboldened and they, they're connecting with one another. But also, they do see an outlet in the president. If Joe Biden wins, I actually worry about the danger of violence in the coming years from these people as they suddenly feel like now they're fighting the government instead of seeing an ally in the White House. Um, I'd rather have that problem than Donald Trump be reelected. But we should be mindful that this this is not going away. And it is fundamentally connected to these technology platforms and these social media yeah. platforms. Yeah, you're right. Like I spent a lot more time online because of COVID. Like, what on earth are these guys doing on 8chan? What kind of deep dives into hate are people doing? How are they being radicalized in this period? And what the hell are these technology platforms doing to prevent that from happening? Nothing, which is why the government is going to have to regulate for the sake of public safety or else we're going to be sitting here in a year talking potentially about, you know, a mass casualty event or something that clearly will, you know, will have some online footprint that led to it. And I mean, how many times do we have to see this story before we, we take it as a national security yeah. threat? Uh, I'm glad we're being alarmist, too, because it's, it's a big deal. But here's a good news story, Ben. You ready? Uh, good. First of all. It comes from friend of the pod, Karen Atia, so you know it's going to be good no matter what. But she had a piece in the Washington Post today about how predictions about the impact of the coronavirus on sub-Saharan Africa were pretty much wrong. And like many people, myself included, assumed that COVID would sweep across Africa as quickly and as lethally as it did through Europe and the U.S., but that's just not what happened. The L.A. Times reported that there have been 34,000 confirmed deaths in Africa out of 1.3 billion people on the continent. Now, even if you assume that confirmed deaths is vastly undercounting the number, that's still well shy of the U.S. numbers and proportionally, like exponentially less. So, um, it's not clear why exactly they fared better. Karen suggests that it may be because some West African nations already had pandemic response infrastructure in place because of Ebola. She also notes, though, that like Rwanda and Senegal, which are you know different locations geographically, responded aggressively and quickly, and their official death tolls are 26 and 302, respectively, so they also did a great job. The LA Times suggests maybe Africa just has a generally younger population, and maybe that was the driver of less fatalities, but I think the takeaway is is the U.S. should look to Africa to better understand that success story and see if we can emulate it because, man, like, we need some help over here. Yeah. I, well, you know, it's interesting. Like, I, I, the Obama Foundation, you know, which I do some work with, has, like, a, 
these young leaders programs, and they have one in Africa that's very big. It's had hundreds of people in it. And and as part of that, occasionally I, I uh, FaceTime or Zoom with some of these uh, young African leaders who are all over the continent, right? And they, everyone I talk to, like there's lockdown, everybody's taken real seriously. <laughs> like I don't get the vibe that there's like anti-mask protests happening in their cities. I don't get the vibe that there are people with AR-15s showing up at the Capitol. I have heard, you know, spotty, you know, some governments are on top of it and some are, are governed by kind of, you know, Bolsonaro type boobs who like, you know, we, 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 uh, we we heard earlier in, in in the year from a Tanzanian about how the the Tanzanian leaders played it down. But across the board, I think you know, yes, Africa has experience dealing with public health crises. They have a young population that you know is increasingly connected, able to get information, and they're doing the right things in a lot of places. And, and you know, another piece of this that we shouldn't lose sight of is like. Africa's like on the move here. Like it's got some of the fastest growing economies in the world. By 2050, half the world's young people are going to be African. Like like we the, this caricature that that America, you know, that Donald Trump has of shithole countries is not the lived reality in huge swaths of that continent. And and America's like just not I mean that that those should be natural partners and friends and allies of ours. And and yeah, we can learn things from them in their public health response um going forward as well. So it's a it's a good news story about COVID, but I think it also also hints at the good news story of, of Africa generally, uh, uh, you know, in, in an area that should get a lot more attention from America than it does. Yeah. Let, let's stay in Africa uh, because Mali has a, a new president or interim president. So the, the former defense minister, uh, Batundao, has been named the president of the new transition government. Uh, a guy named Asami Goita, who is the colonel who led the coup that overthrew the last government, has been named vice president. Uh, they're going to get inaugurated on September 25th. They're supposed to lead for, I believe, 18 months, uh, basically a transitional period that will then lead to elections that are supposed to return Mali to civilian rule. Ben, we talked about this coup a few weeks back and how an organization of Western African states uh, called ECOWAS has been helping mediate. I always say ECOWAS, and then I get in trouble and people say, no, idiot, it's ECOWAS. Sorry. But, you know, hopefully um, everybody stays engaged because I do think that that last part, that, that transition to civilian rule, is obviously the key, but it is good news that they sorted out this transitional government. Yeah, I mean, Mali you know, one of the more challenging parts of Africa. And and I, I mentioned this last time, but ECOWAS has actually been a, a, a responsible organization when it comes to, to democratic norms. And, and if you look at the language uh, that ECOWAS has been using and in insisting on a transition to elections, uh, trying to insist upon not having a military officer running the country, um, it, you know, it's an imperfect result by any stretch. You know, the, uh, there's kind of this defense committee, essentially, the, uh, husbanding this transition. But the statements from ECOWAS are more constructive than anything that we hear from the president of the United States. You know, I mean, <laughs> he's floating his own third term, right? I mean, yeah, he's floating his own third term. And these guys are like, no, 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 no. You got to If you want to be in the club, you got to move to democracy. And like, what a positive sign, right? That, that these great. people, you know, self-organized, right? Like a community of, of West African states, like trying to stand up for democratic norms. Again, not suggesting they're perfect. And I'm sure that there's, there's corruption in, in Mali and, and all the rest of it. But but the the idea that democracy is not just some U.S. thing, it's just not something that like American presidents give speeches about at the U.N., it's something that, that you know, can have a West African flavor. It's something that can have a Southeast Asian flavor. It's something that can have a Latin American flavor, like that, that, that regional organizations can stand up for these norms. Like that's a positive sign. Mali's got a 
long way to go, so I don't overstate it. Um, but hopefully, if, if there's just kind of a focus on, um, on on sticking to a process like this, this this can avoid the worst outcomes of a coup, which is like the nation descends into violence and civil war, or just kind of brutal, unabashed military dictatorship. So better to kind of try to keep everybody's eye on the ball here and keep this thing moving uh, in the direction of some civilian transition. Agreed. Um, so Ben, uh, Trump's former national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, wrote a book. He's doing a bunch of press around it, did an interview with USA Today. Uh, I talk about parts of it later in the conversation with Susanna George, because he dumps all over the the Afghan Taliban talks. He also says the risk of another 9-11 style attack on America is, quote, very high, and that in U.S. in many ways is more at risk today than we were before 9-11. I'm not sure what that says about his leadership. Uh, I'd love to hear him flesh out that judgment because it's a little bit alarmist. But, um, you know, some of the press he's doing is annoying because he hides behind the claim that he doesn't want to get political to avoid really commenting on Trump. But I, I wanted to ask you, Ben, um, you actually read and reviewed McMaster's book. How great is it? Future bestseller, five stars. What's your take? So, yeah, I, I actually did have the pleasure is not the right word. Um, <laughs> the opportunity to review this book. Uh, Worlders should check that out. It's going to be in the Washington Post. Um, and um, so I, I can't comment too much on it just because like the agreement of, of, of the review was uh, obviously the, my thoughts would be in the review. But since some of this has been publicly discussed and you just mentioned the 9-11 thing, that that mindset permeates this book. Like you would think it was September twelfth, two thousand one, to read this thing, and and you would not know that Donald Trump is actually president of the United States. Yeah. Um. And it it just it, it betrays essentially this kind of inability to see how the danger of the Trump presidency <laughs> um, is the number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten challenge for the United States because none of the other things that, that either H.R. McMaster or any of these other guys, Mattis, want to do, even the things I disagree with, like are going to happen when Donald Trump is president. And but also like this just just cannot get out of the 9-11 mindset uh, and that, you know, uh, you look around the world today. Um, first of all, I just think it's an absurd notion that we're more at risk than since 9-11. I mean, we're not, you know, there's just not the same risk of a mass casualty event as there was in 9-11. It's just, there's just not. Um, there are risks of, you know, terrorists shooting people or, or plowing cars into crowds. But as we've lived in this country the last few years, like there's a hell of a lot more of that from crazy white people than from, you know, terrorist directed operatives from the Middle East. It's just not, that's just not the reality. This is not the world we're living in. And, and, and that obsession, that mindset has, is allowing all these other problems from climate change to disinformation to, to China trying to supplant, you know, democracy is the way, the norm for the, the world. Like this is all happening while we're sitting over here, like hyper obsessed with terrorism in Iran. I mean, that, that is such a dangerous trap uh, uh, to, to fall in. I know. I, I love just like riffing on how we're, we're at more risk than we were before 9-11. And then when asked anything about Trump, these these guys say like, oh, I, I just don't want to get political. It's like, well, guy, you know, you, you served as the national security advisor. It's a political job. And, but that's a political statement, by the way. Yeah. It's, a, it's not, you know, they'll say it's an analytical statement that we're more risk since. Not, no, it's a political statement. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you're using to, to defend a bunch of policies that you pursued when you were a political appointee, you know? And, and I'm just so tired of this. Like the people who are still in the military, men and women in uniform can rightly say, 
Like, I'm not political and I can't comment on this right. stuff. Fair. You take off that uniform and you take jobs like Secretary of Defense chief or of National staff. Security Advisor or White House Chief of Staff. You are the White House Chief of Staff is the most political job in the entire United States government. Literally. It's, it's more political than even the President of the United States. Rahm and you had got it. Kelly, Kelly, <laughs> I, I can't. I, Rahm Emanuel. Like, what, what? General Rahm Emanuel had this job. And, and John Kelly can't. Offer us an opinion about the racist lunatic running the country because he's holding himself up as some citizen warrior general. Yeah. Like, no, you when you took off the uniform, just and by the way, what a coincidence none of these guys did that, you know, for for any president other than Trump. Like there was something about Donald Trump that Jim Mattis and Kelly and McMaster looked at that and said, sure, I'll be a part of that, you know? And and like I am you know, it doesn't take too much to think about what do these guys have in common, right? Um, and who might they, you know, look down upon in American society? I mean, there's like some elephants in the room here, you know. Um, the, like the way they talked about Obama is just dripping with the disdain that they would never use for Trump. So in the same breath that they say they won't comment on Trump. They'll just be withering about Obama. It's just wild to me to criticize Obama when you won't criticize the former president for yeah. saying the dead troops are losers and suckers. It feels like I, that feels like a soft, you know, anyone can swing at that pitch and not be criticized. But, you know, what do I know? But uh, so, again, like we mentioned the, the U.N. General Assemblies this week. OK, so Trump delivered his speech by video, I guess, I assume because of COVID concerns. It was fairly boilerplate stuff. Lots of shots at China. So Xi Jinping used his speech to pledge to make China carbon neutral by 2060. Here's a quote from Xi Jinping, quote, humankind can no longer afford to ignore the repeated warnings of nature and go down the beaten path of extracting resources without investing in conservation, pursuing the development at the expense of protection and exploiting resources without restoration. I never thought I'd see the day where I wish the president of the United States delivered remarks that the president of China had delivered. You know, experts say we need to get to zero, uh, net zero carbon emissions by 2050 to avoid the worst climate change disaster. So you can maybe say China needs to speed it up, but at least they're trying, man. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> it's I mean, it, the, the extremism of the Republican Party is not fully appreciated that there, there's not debates in any of these other countries about whether or not climate change exists. That, that isn't happening anywhere in the world except here. Even even foreign governments that don't want to do anything about it at least acknowledge it's real. And then the other thing is like the Chinese, you know, Xi's been doing this very skillfully since Trump got elected, which is while the Americans are over there imploding, you know, and looking like a bunch of the biggest morons on the block, you know, we are going to speak very earnestly about things like climate change and international trade. And, and you know, even as we are building like a techno totalitarian dystopia that we aim to like spread, you know, gradually around the world, we'll talk about these things that you guys care about because we want to be the superpower now. And, you know, th- th- this is all happening right now. Like, like the-, the rest of the world is not like waiting to see what happens in our election. They won't be assured if Trump is defeated that America has its act together because like we just elected this guy and look how we just handled COVID. Um, so it- it's a sign of both like how out of step we are in climate, but just generally about how like these other nations and leaders are just taking mass advantage of the moment that they have where the U.S. looks totally ridiculous. And Xi Jinping is deeply unnerving to a lot of governments and people around the world. But they'll look at him, look at Trump and be like, well, at least this guy gets a climate change exists. And at least he seems to be competent. And at least it seems like they reasonably have their shit together. And 
And so, you know what? As much as we'd prefer like the untidiness of freedom, we can't throw our lot in with these Americans. Those guys are nuts, you know? Yeah. And, and yeah. that's the calculation that's being made in Africa, in Latin America, in Europe, in Asia right now. Yeah, everywhere with the Gulf. Uh, Xi Jinping, welcome yeah. to the Sunrise Movement. Good to have you here, buddy. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I know we've been a little Trump heavy today, but I could not leave this one out. A uh, little Jared Kushner uh, uh, moment here. So in his previous book, Fear, Bob Woodward reported that Trump considered assassinating uh, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. When he was asked about it at the time when the book was released, he lied. He denied the claim. But then, for some reason, Ben, in a recent Fox News interview, Trump said they asked him again. And he's like, yeah, we talked about assassinating him, but we didn't take Assad out because Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis didn't want to do it. So because we live in like a hell of constant news, this really didn't get a lot of play, but it's a huge deal. So for, for listeners, there's an executive order number 11905. It was signed by President Ford in 1976. It specifically prohibits political assassinations for very good reasons, because our CIA was literally uh, a crazy deep state that was trying to, and succeeding in many cases, murder uh, foreign leaders back in like the 50s. But Trump just admitted in this interview that they were debating something that is illegal, or I guess maybe they decided to change the EO and we just don't know about it. But so, you know, smug teen like staffer Jared Kushner was asked about all this during an interview with Sinclair Broadcasting, like, you know, sort of Trump TV light. Uh, and he said, quote, it's a full contact sport. It's not touch football. And then he refused to rule out political assassination as a tool of U.S. foreign policy. So I, not a lot of clarity there, Ben. I, you know, and I guess for and for those who like, you know, sort of well actually us uh, about drones and other things like there. Yes, you have a point that the United States uses lethal methods to target terrorists. They use it on the battlefield, et cetera. This is about political leaders. Like we can't kill the president of France, for example, under this EO. It was a remarkable moment. I thought. Well, I mean, like Jared Kushner, you know, <laughs> this guy. Um, I mean, this guy like was running the fucking New York Observer, like, 15, 15, like he's just some like the like, smug, rich fuck from New Jersey, like from some scummy real estate family who like married into another scummy real estate family and then got his dad to like buy him the pink media newspaper so he could hobnob with like media moguls. And he's talking about assassinating like the, the leaders of other countries. Like, like what the hell has happened here? You know? Sure. I, the other thing I'd say is like the Soleimani assassination, right? Uh, which seems like a million years ago, even though it was in 2020. Um, uh, again, awful guy, awful guy. Awful guy. Yeah. But like the reason January. that it mattered that that was illegal. And the, the reason we talked a lot about the justification, you, people may, um, worldos may remember that the, the administration tied itself in knots asserting that there was an imminent threat to U.S. forces that had to be stopped by assassinating this guy. Every account that has come out since then demonstrates that that's totally BS. That basically Trump just decided he was given some options of of how to get tough on Iran. And he's like, well, let's kill this guy, you know. And so then we assassinate an Iranian general. And 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 then post facto say it was imminent and there's nothing to back it up. Like this matters because like there is no international law. It's, it's hard to think of something that is is more flagrantly and, you know, would, would be living in a world of the law of the jungle than a world in which assassinating the leaders of other countries just fair game. And, and that doesn't mean I, I like I have any brief for Assad. It just means that like 
I don't want to live in a world where countries go around assassinating the leaders of other countries. Like, that's some dark stuff, right? And and it, it's dark enough that, like, you've got Putin trying to assassinate people like Alexei Navalny in, in Russia, right? People can, can come at us and say it's dark enough that you guys had killed us in, in the Obama administration. Again, we... We went out of our way to try to argue that these are combatants. These are terrorists at war with the United States. That's the legal basis for what we're doing. It's, it is entirely different than assassinating a political leader. But sure, come at us on that. Because like, there, uh, like I would rather live in a world with less killing. And, and certainly a world in which leaders feel like there's some cost that you'll pay if you do it. And, and right now, there's, there seems to be no cost. It seems like you can do this stuff with impunity. And don't think that won't blow back on us. Like, we said this about Iran, for instance, after the Civil War. Their response was not going to be over in six months or one year, or even if Donald Trump doesn't get reelected. They are going to want to get revenge at some point. And, and, and so this is, this is a Pandora's box that should just stay shut no matter what noted, you know, General Jared Kushner thinks. Yeah, modern day Alan Dulles, Jared Kushner. Let's talk about Iran for a minute. Um, back in June, uh, the State Department publicly suspended a contract that that pay this company to act as basically a, a foreign policy troll account with the Twitter handle at Iran Disinfo. Ben, I'm sure they trolled you. I'm sure they trolled me. The account spent most of its time just attacking U.S. critics of Trump's Iran policy, which is the totally inappropriate use of State Department funds. Um, this week, The Intercept reported that the State Department actually continued working with a company that ran the Iran Disinfo account. It's the Orwellianly named E-Collective for Civic Education long after June. So the best part, Ben, is that apparently their plan was to have this company's trolls promote messages in Farsi from another Twitter troll, Rick Grinnell, who was currently at the time the ambassador to Germany. So it's a play within a play. It's an embedded narrative. This is Hamlet. Maybe it's just propaganda. You're the the masters in fiction guy. Maybe correct me if I'm wrong. But so, Ben, (laughs) this was routed through states Global Engagement Center, which is an organization you have a, a bit of experience uh, working with this. Is this how you envision the Global Engagement Center operating, just promoting Rick Grinnell <laughs> no, no, no. as he attacks Americans who don't like hardline Iran policy? Oh, my God. It's like, I mean, I'll give them all credit. They, they successfully <laughs> have owned the libs. Like, I'm pretty owned here. Like, look, I helped set up the Global Engagement Center. We set this up in the second Obama administration to basically have a coordinating hub to deal with counter ISIS messaging and countering Russian disinformation. And the idea was that this would be kind of an interagency thing, which is a nerdy thing to say, but that it would be at the State Department, but the intelligence community and other agencies could have people sitting there kind of looking at these disinformation campaigns or these ISIS campaigns. And then they could coordinate with friends like Europeans to 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 come up with, you know, counter messaging, or we're gonna spotlight this Russian disinformation, or we're gonna counteract this, you know, disinformation narrative. None of it in the U.S., by the way. <laughs> this is all the State Department outward focusing. And and what's amazing to me is it's, it's basically as if like our Twitter trolls on Iran, they got in charge of the U.S. government. And so what are they doing? They're like using taxpayer resources to to come after and, you know, troll essentially those of us who supported diplomacy with Iran and to promote their own Twitter it's accounts. Nuts. Like, they, let's be clear, like they, they want to drive up the follower count for Rick Grinnell, right? Because he probably <laughs> measures his like life's worth based on his Twitter followers or his, his likes and stuff, right? I mean, this is what they're doing with your money. This is your money. Like next time you pay taxes, just know that you're you're paying taxes to to pad Rick Grinnell's Twitter follower number and to troll like Jason Resign was one of the people trolled. Yeah. <laughs> like a, a Washington Post journalist in prison and even prison in Iran, including in solitary confinement. And they attacked him because he wasn't sufficiently with the program. I mean, this is nuts. 
It's why. It, it just speaking of Iran, like a quick update on the policy. Like we, we've talked previously about how the U.S. was trying to force the United Nations to reimpose U.N. sanctions that were part of the JCPOA, the 2015 uh, Iran nuclear deal. Um, that has failed miserably. All the other signatories of the deal, including like the U.K., Boris Johnson's given Trump the Heisman. France, Germany, the EU, Russia, China, they've all said no. On Monday, the U.S. imposed some more sanctions. You're starting to see, Ben, this is the disconcerting part, anonymous officials backgrounding the press saying Iran could have enough fissile material for a nuclear weapon by the end of the year. They're sort of ramping up the urgency here. So like, it looks like if that's true, and we shouldn't believe them that it's true, but the maximum pressure strategy has totally failed. These guys also sort of seem like they're backing themselves into a corner because I'm not sure what comes next here. Like, do you sanction the EU? Do you take military action? Like, hopefully Biden wins and we never find out. But, you know, just so folks know, like this propaganda effort was seemingly necessary because the policy has been such a failure. Yeah. And it's like there's no measure of success for this policy other than the fact of the policy itself, that like the pressure itself is the goal of the policy because Iran is expanding its nuclear program. Our allies are completely fed up with us. And the amount of effort that we're spending as a government, I mean, they've spent more effort trying to figure out some bizarre way to reimpose these sanctions over the objections of everybody else on the UN Security Council, everybody else in the deal, than they have on like trying to figure out how to deal with like an international COVID response. I mean, like the degree to which like the priorities of the Secretary of State are completely warped by this this monomaniacal obsession with Iran. I mean, it's another one. We talk about terrorism. How is it going to look like in 50 years? How are we going to explain like, why the, the, the strongest superpower in the world, which we were no longer, but we were, was this obsessed with like this kind of pretty you know, medium sized country in, in, the, in the Middle East, like that doesn't directly really threaten us. So it feels like Cuba in the in the 60s and 70s. And well, today, I guess. Yeah, it's just yeah, no, it's this complete obsession. I mean, yeah, they threaten our troops and they they, they, they threaten some, you know, they threaten Israel and we are dealing with the number one threat, the, the nuclear issue. But this this is nuts compared to like you've got China, you've got COVID, you've got climate change. And this is what we're doing. And the rest of the world thinks it's totally insane. Yeah, unless you're a, a Gulf country. Well, yeah, I'll get dunked on by people being like, you know, well, you forgot about the peace he brought to the Middle East. Okay, like Bahrain, a country of 1.5 <laughs> million people with an apartheid system is normalizing relations with Israel. I don't think that's going to magically make the Iranians surrender. Like, no. if that's your standard, if you really think that this this uh, this alliance like is going to somehow, like, you know, Iran is going to come out with its hand up and give up its nuclear program, like, then you're really not paying attention here because they're just expanding their nuclear program. Yeah. Uh, two more quick things. Sorry for going a little long. So we, we often complain about how like all these top Trump officials will, will tell reporters on background about how they're saving the country. Then they refuse to actually speak up on the record. So I have a new nominee uh, for an award I'm calling the feckless reputation burnishing leak of the year. So this one went to CNN's Barbara Starr. So recently, Trump said that the Pentagon leadership doesn't like him because he's anti-war and they just want to fight wars. So defense companies can sell them weapons and make a ton of money. Um, CNN reported that uh, Defense Secretary Mark Esper and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, got so angry about this outrageous smear of their character and their decades of service, Ben, that they called Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff, to complain. 
Wow. Can you believe it? I mean, the stones it takes to call Meadows. Mark Esper, former Raytheon lobbyist who has helped turn U.S. foreign policy into a fucking arms sale bazaar, was so upset he called the chief of staff. I, I was like, I read this article and I was like, was there like a throwdown at a big NSC meeting? Was like, what was this? No, calling over to DOD, calling over to the White House. Like it happens every day. It's time to reissue another edition of Profiles and Courage, Tommy, that they, you know, they, they called the White House chief of staff to, 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 to strongly voice complaint and then leaked it to Barbara Starr. Like, what audience are they even playing to? I mean, like, who, who is going to say, you know what? Like, I, I, I thought that these guys were really getting rolled by Trump, but then I saw a background report to Barbara Starr, and now I have confidence in, in the leadership of the United States military is standing up for this and standing up on behalf of the troops. Uh, yeah, it's something to tell me that that, that yeah. phone call, strongly worded phone call, is not going to affect the behavior of the commander-in-chief. Yeah, no, and and I like Barbara Starr a lot. I know you do too, but this uh, that that leak was for the E ring of the Pentagon, which is where a bunch of the the senior people. Yeah, exactly. Their shows. Yeah. Last thing. So speaking of uh, Pentagon spending, the Washington Post had an outrageous report that said that DOD spent most of a one billion dollar fund that they were given by Congress to purchase COVID related medical equipment on the following: defense contractors jet engine parts, and dress uniforms. Uh, This was money in the CARES Act, right? It was specifically earmarked to prevent, prepare for, and respond to the coronavirus. Last week, you know, the CDC director said states need $6 billion to distribute vaccines next year. There's still a severe PPE shortage in part because these companies that were trying to convert their facilities to manufacture like N95 masks didn't receive assurances that the government would buy them. So, I'm just saying, if you're a doctor who can't get an N95 mask, don't be mad because two million of the billion intended to procure those supplies <laughs> went to the American <laughs> Woolen Company in Connecticut to make army dress uniforms. Then, like stories like this are why I never ever believe Pentagon officials when they say they can't absorb a budget cut. And like, look, if we're being honest, more often than not, the Congress is part of the problem because they enable this bullshit instead of like checking them because it goes to some contractor in their district. But like, this was unbelievable. Yeah, no, and like every now and then, it's worth reminding yourself that if in January, February, Trump invoked the Defense Production Act, and and some of these resources were put to the surging of production of masks, and then the post office was able to mail masks to every American, like over a hundred thousand lives probably would have been saved, right? So there's that element to this, but like to your last point, let's just like plant a flag again on this. Like Joe Biden, if he doesn't cut this defense budget. That's a huge mistake. And and there's an area where progressives want to hold an incoming Biden presidency, if we have one, um, hold their feet to the fire. It's this because they'll always come at you and tell you that the world is going to end if we don't get, you know, our trillion dollars, our eight hundred billion dollars here. And then when you actually dig into the budget, there's all this crap like this, you know, and, you know, they'll tell you the world, the country will be unsafe and this and that and the sky will fall. And it's never true. It's never true. And it certainly won't be true in January 2021 if Joe Biden's elected. So I I, I hope that that he he takes, uh, you know, it's not enough to just cut like serious cuts here to, to an insane budget. Yeah, um, it, this is sort of neither here nor there, Ben, but one of the guys interviewed in that Washington Post piece is the CEO of a drone company, and his name is Chad Sweet. So I just thought, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like really uh, great name. Getting it. Chad Wolf, Chad Sweet. 
That's that. That is top five uh, drone operator names in, in the history of drone yeah. operator names. Okay. Uh, when we come back, we'll have my conversation with Susanna George, uh, the Afghanistan and Pakistan bureau chief for the Washington Post, about the the Taliban talks, what it's like covering uh, this this weird event, uh, and the latest on the war in Afghanistan. So stick around for that. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. I am very excited uh, that Susanna George could join us today. She's the Afghanistan and Pakistan bureau chief for the Washington Post and has been covering the Afghan peace talks that have been happening in Doha, Qatar. Uh, Susanna, thank you so much for doing the show. Thank you so much for having me on. So I, I know you're back in Kabul now, uh, but you were recently covering these talks. Can I just start by asking you to sort of help listeners sort of set the scene and understand what the talks are like? I mean, these are three parties uh, that have been at war for nearly two decades. I, actually, I suspect that there's some individuals who may have been fighting for it even longer. What's it like in the room? Who is there? And then, you know, as a Western journalist, what are your interactions like with the various parties? Yeah, so these talks are really, these are two-party talks. These are just between um, the negotiating team representing the Taliban and the negotiating team representing the Afghan Republic. And so that's a little bit different from the Afghan government, which is right. sometimes referred to um, in media. We have officials on that team that are from the Afghan government, but also people from um, rival political parties, civil society activists. So these two got two groups of uh, negotiating teams are meeting behind closed doors, very far away from where journalists can access um, in a separate hotel from the, the hotel where journalists are allowed to stay. Um, and what we do know, what's very positive, is that they're meeting almost every day. Um, the meetings are lasting hours and that they're continuing to meet. Um, that was something that was a big concern uh, leading up to these talks, that they would meet once and the talks would collapse. So the fact that they're continuing to meet regularly is a positive sign. However, they have not yet even begun to discuss the substance of what it would take to bring peace to Afghanistan. They're really kind of bogged down at this point and it's a little over a week in, in the logistics of how they would then discuss the substance of the matter. Right. I mean, you reported over the weekend that while they've met a handful of times, they haven't agreed on the basic format of the negotiations, including the issues that will be discussed and in what order. Um, it is hopeful, indeed, that they are continuing to meet. But do you have any sense of how you know we're proceeding on these procedural matters? Yeah, so I mean, if you look at the entirety of the US effort to talk peace with the Taliban um, as a model, and this was, you know, by far a much less complex series of negotiations than what we're going to be facing um, between the uh, Afghan Republic and the Taliban negotiating teams, it was almost 10 years worth of, uh, of meetings that, you know, started and then fell apart. Um, and it was only the last you know, year and a half when they really kind of gained traction um, under um, a special envoy, Zameh Khalilzad, that the U.S. really started to, um, started to gain momentum and make progress. So if you look at that and then you compare that to the really difficult issues that are in front of these two negotiating teams, civil liberties, 
you know, what kind of a government Afghanistan is going to be? Will it be a democracy? Will there be elections? Um, who will control security? I mean, how are these two um, sides that have been at war for decades going to, are they going to integrate security forces? Um, you know, who's going to control security where? These are really difficult issues. Um, we could definitely be looking at a process that takes months to years here. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I have gotten whiplash reading these stories. Like when I was at the White House um, back in, what, 2010, we were having these painstaking talks about whether to trade five decrepit Taliban guys from uh, Gitmo for Bo Bergdahl, U.S. service member. It was this series of sort of confidence building steps. Now you're seeing a prisoner swap for 5,000 fighters for 1,000, you know, Afghan security officials. So it does seem like that, I guess that's hopeful, right? There's been a lot of movement in terms of just getting things done. Well, that prisoner uh, release or the prisoner swap in the lead up to the talks is actually something that a lot of Afghan officials and even Afghan um, citizens, civilians, will tell you they feel put the Afghan government side on the back foot even before talks could begin. Uh, you know, this was um, a prisoner swap that was agreed to between the U.S. and the Taliban in the deal that the Afghan government wasn't a party to. And so it felt to many Afghan officials that they were making concessions to the Taliban before they even had a chance to sit down at the negotiating table. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I guess I'm stretching too hard to find uh, hope in these things. So let's just step back to the big picture, because, you know, I, I think. The peace talks are happening, but that doesn't mean that the fighting has stopped. You know, you reported on two Afghan government airstrikes over the weekend that killed 10 civilians uh, and 30 Taliban fighters. There are constant attacks by Taliban fighters against Afghan security forces. There have been attacks in Kabul against top uh, government officials. Is there any hope or time frame that you've heard about for a reduction in violence that might actually protect you know, the Afghan people and civilians? Well, we know from Afghan government officials that one of the first things they want to talk about is a ceasefire once they get down to substance, once they're able to start talking about the substantive issues. The Taliban have been very clear and very consistent that they will only um, talk about a ceasefire once a political deal has been settled. So that means at the end of negotiations. So they're very far apart on that issue. Uh, but what we've already seen a week into these talks beginning is that as these meetings are happening in Doha, violence has increased on the ground in Afghanistan. And it might seem counterintuitive, um, you know, that as these historic peace talks have launched, we're in effect seeing an escalation of the war. But in fact, it's exactly the same thing that we saw when talks between the US and the Taliban gained traction. The war escalated on the battlefield because both sides were looking to try to use battlefield wins to create leverage at the negotiating table. So it's not irrational to assume that we'll see the same scenario play out now that it's the Taliban and the government talking. Yeah. This week, uh, Trump's former national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, very publicly criticized the talks. He said he doesn't think the Taliban will ever break with al-Qaeda, uh, that Afghanistan will become an even larger training ground for terrorists. And he seems to think that any sort of power sharing agreement between the Afghan government and the Taliban is sort of fundamentally unworkable. Is that a sentiment that you hear among, say, you know, U.S. and Afghan government officials that you, you speak to privately? There's definitely a lot of pessimism. Um, you, I think I, I hear as much pessimism as I hear optimism about these talks at this point. Um, but what 
there is a lot of concern about is these public statements of further U.S. troop withdrawals that don't appear to be conditions-based. Um, the U.S. Taliban deal uh, was clear that any drawdown beyond um, 8,600 um, 8, would be conditions-based, but now we're hearing U.S. officials say that uh, we'll be at you know between four and 5,000 by November, and Afghans are very conscious that that's a month where there's a U.S. presidential election. So it's hard. Um, it, U.S. support for the Afghan government is a really important piece of leverage for the Afghan government in these talks with the Taliban. Um, and U.S. officials will, will disagree with you on this. And they'll say, you know, we've continued to conduct airstrikes against Taliban targets even after the peace deal in support of our allies, um, the Afghan government. And that shows that we are continuing to support them. But this talk about further troop drawdowns, it's really hard not to interpret that as U.S. just trying to find a way out of the war here. Yeah. I mean, look, to your point, I think in early August, Trump himself said he wanted to have fewer than 5,000 troops in Afghanistan by Election Day, which is an accelerated schedule, even from the agreement that we made back in February, which I think was, you know, uh, talking about 14 months. Um, do you have a sense of how, like, is the Afghan average Afghan citizen concerned about a, a speedy U.S. withdrawal? Do they want us out no matter what, it's just, you know, it's been two decades and it's time. Like, what's your sense of sort of how this is uh, the sentiment among the average civilian? I think it's really hard to kind of boil it down to the sentiment of the average civilian. I've talked to Afghans who can't wait for the U.S. to get out. Um, I've talked to Afghans who are very concerned. I mean, you know, in the days following the release of the text of the U.S. Taliban peace deal, I talked to Afghans who felt that that was, um, that even talking about a drawdown to zero was a betrayal um, of you know what they had sacrificed with the promise of continued U.S. support, you know especially Afghan women who have been empowered by the U.S. by uh, the presence of U.S. forces um, in in Afghanistan, people who've benefited, um, who you know civil civil liberties activists, um, uh, other people who you know who've really supported the. Um, the democratic process in Afghanistan, you know, those people feel are very concerned about a, about a quick U.S. withdrawal. Um, but if you talk to people who live in territory that is under the control of the Taliban, who um, have suffered and lost loved ones from U.S. airstrikes, for them, they can't wait for the U.S. to, um, to withdraw because they haven't seen the benefits of the U.S. presence here. All they've seen is, you know, an escalation of violence. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about, you know, the the future uh, of, of women in Afghanistan. I mean, today there are senior women in, in the Afghan government. There are judges or members of parliament, the police force. Um, but the Taliban regime from 96 to 2001 was extraordinarily misogynistic. I mean, Human Rights Watch described them as notorious for denying women and girls access to education, jobs, health care, freedom of movement. There were horrifying instances of uh, public executions, corporal punishment. Have women's rights been a focal point of, of the talks or, you know, or at least a focal point of, you know, the Afghan um, government side of the talks? Well, the Afghan government has um, said that women's rights will be uh, a focus uh, of the talks. When you try to pin Taliban leaders down on how they define women's rights, um, how women's rights will continue to be protected, 
um, in an Afghanistan where they share power uh, with uh, the, the current government, um, they, they're very cagey. They say, you know, it's up for interpretation. We're going to discuss it in the talks. Beyond that, we, we're not going um, to give any further details. At this point, we really don't have any clarity on, you know, what the state of women's rights will be um, in any post-war uh, post um, Afghan government, just because the two sides right now are so far apart and they haven't even begun to discuss the issue. So we really don't have, um, don't have any idea, but the Afghan government, they uh, have four women on their negotiating team, and they've definitely, um, in the statements leading up to the talks, have said that it's a priority for them to maintain the gains that women have made um, over the last uh, around 20 years. And wasn't one of those women injured in a recent suicide attack in Kabul? It was an assassination attempt, Fazia Pufi, yes. Spoke to her in Doha. She said that she's healing well. Um, she had to have her wound uh, cleaned and redressed while she was in Doha between meetings with the Taliban. Um, but she said, uh, you know, she said that she's she's been a longtime outspoken um, supporter of, of women's rights in Afghanistan. And she said that she was really happy that she was able to be there um, and that her voice would be heard uh, by the Taliban uh, leadership on the table across from her. Yeah, just an extraordinarily brave human being. You know, in America, we talk a lot about troops, you know, whether and when, when they'll come out. We talk a lot about uh, training of Afghan security forces. I feel like I don't hear much about what international effort there may or may not be to aid in uh, reconstruction of Afghanistan to help build institutions. Is, is that something that's happening uh, on another track? Well, I think the Trump administration has been pretty clear that they're not in the business of nation building um, and that their focus in Afghanistan is uh, to end the war um, and withdraw U.S. troops. So that's probably why you're not hearing a lot of talk about um, building up institutions. Um, but in terms of the international community, um, you know, that's a big concern because uh, if there is a power sharing government, you're going to need some pretty strong institutions. Um, if you want to ensure that any international aid that's pumped into Afghanistan is not misused. So that's definitely something that people are concerned about. But um, with, you know, all of the insecurity that's going on, um, with uh, the damage to Afghanistan's economy due to the coronavirus pandemic, mm -hmm. um, it's probably, um, probably pushed uh, to the side for now. Yeah. How is Afghanistan faring these days with the coronavirus? I remember hearing about it early on, but not as much recently. Well, infection rates have dropped significantly, as have um, and death rates have remained incredibly low throughout the entire pandemic. That's official death rates, of course. People could be um, dying and um, not being brought to hospitals. Um, in Afghanistan, there are no death certificates, so it's very hard to count um, deaths. Um, however, um, we do know that these hospitals, these emergency hospitals that were stood up to receive extra coronavirus patients have begun to empty out. Um, that was in um, more recent months. We haven't hit the cold weather season yet. That's when uh, the humanitarian community expects to see a spike. But where you really have seen Afghanistan hit hard by the coronavirus pandemic is in the downturn in the country's economy. It's already one of the poorest countries in the world. Um, and because of closed borders, trade has been massively disrupted. Agriculture, um, people have lost their jobs in agriculture, which has put more strain um, on, the country's, um, on the country's economy. 
and push more people into poverty. And that's really where you see the effects of the coronavirus pandemic on Afghanistan. Yeah. One question about covering these talks. I mean, it was sort of jarring for me to see video of you know, Taliban representatives doing essentially press avails, right, surrounded by Western journalists with iPhones recording them, asking them questions. Uh, is that something you've done? And like, how are how do you source up with the Taliban? I mean, it's not like in Washington when people like go to lunch or, or get a drink. I mean, how, how does this work? Well, they have a media office. Um, they have spokespeople. Um, and you saw that a lot of the members of their negotiating team were making themselves available to answer questions to journalists. Yeah. Most of those answers were incredibly vague, but they were making themselves available nonetheless. Um, and yeah, you can definitely sit down and um, have a tea with um, members of the negotiating team. Not all members are willing to speak to journalists yet. You know, they say that especially some of the new members who've joined recently um, aren't comfortable with the press yet. They haven't been exposed to the media. Um, and so, you know, the new um, lead negotiator, Hakeem, he wasn't making himself available. But other more um, seasoned um, members, such as uh, Suhail Shaheen, you know, regularly sits down with journalists. Um, but, you know, that's a very, you know, the Taliban office in Doha and Qatar is uh, a very different, you know, that's a, it's a, they have a smooth media operation and it's very different from, you know, the group of Taliban commanders um, on the ground in Afghanistan. Um, it's two very right. different parts of one organization. Right. And sort of, uh, you know, along that line, I mean, there have been some reports about maybe splits among the Taliban, that there are some regions, some commanders who just refuse to go along with the talks in any way, shape or form. Is that a concern that there's a possibility that negotiators aren't actually speaking for the, the Taliban in its entirety as a group? Yeah, that's definitely been a concern for a long time. Um, and I've met with Taliban commanders who have said that if the Taliban leadership in Doha makes any kind of a deal with the Afghan government, who they see as just a puppet arm of uh, the United States and infidels by default, this small group of Taliban commanders who I met in Kunar, um, they said that they'll break away from the Taliban and take up arms against them. Um, you know, and this is the nightmare scenario for people yeah. um, that they this would happen in a large scale. You know, that was just one small group of Taliban commanders in, a, um, in w one province and not in, you know, the traditional heartland of the Taliban. So that certainly doesn't speak for the movement overall, but that's definitely a concern and it definitely exists in some parts. Yeah. Last question for you. The Taliban famously almost got to uh, kick back and relax uh, at Camp David for a weekend. <laughs> Is there, do people talk about that? weird offer from the White House. Is that something that actually almost happened? Like, would the Taliban have agreed to have flown to Maryland for a meeting with the United States, do you think? You know, I should have asked about that. I That was not something that I asked about when I was in Doha, <laughs> but it's a very good question. Um, yeah, it seems so long ago now, but you're right. That was, uh, was just a few months ago. Uh, <laughs> um, so I don't have anything more for you on that, unfortunately. That's okay. I think you were asking the right questions uh, and not <laughs> if they were like, you know, excited to get a, a beer at the bar at uh, uh, Camp David. <laughs> Susanna George, thank you so much uh, for taking the time today. Uh, everyone should check out your reporting in the post. It is fantastic. Uh, all kinds of important dispatches from the ground all over Afghanistan. So thank you uh, for all the work you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Susanna George for joining the show today. Uh, ben, how's it going over there? How's the smoke in, in Venice today? It's, it's decent here. 
It's better here. Yeah, it's definitely better here. I mean, it was the worst it's been in 30 years uh, last week, but uh, this air freshener has made a big difference here too. I got an air freshener. Yeah, we finally got one too. And oh my God. But it's also bad because the air freshener like has an app where it just tells you just how bad it is. So then it's sort of, it's both alarmist, but also I think helping. But I, I feel way better than I did two weeks ago. Yeah, I like the app. I like to know how fucked I am. Like, uh, <laughs> I, like to, I like to be aware. <laughs> All right, cool, cool. All right, well, good to see you, and uh, we'll talk to you all next week. Cool. Pot Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Chris Basil. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Special thanks to Quinn Lewis for production support. And thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Nar Malconian, and Milo Kim, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com.